Hong Kong, city of mystery. I want you to come away with me. I can't. She was seduced by power. Many men want to be left to me. And haunted by her past. How is it I want so badly the one woman I can't have? You think something's wrong? Except that I love this woman and she loves you. For a reporter. Can I interview you, Jean? Well, actually, I've got to go. I'll pay you. Getting the story. My partner and I are all legitimate businessmen. Where did you get that? Give it to me, John. I know about you. I know what you're up to. Became a choice. I want to leave Hong Kong. I don't believe you. Between who he loved. I'm offering you something real. I'm offering you something now. And who he believed. They gave me money. I'm not giving it back. City of hope is becoming a city of fear. There might be an eruption. Just a personal decision. From the critically acclaimed director Wayne Wang. I write every day about this place, and yet I understand nothing. Comes a story of love. I can't get it out of my mind. Where passions are concealed. Are you frightened? Of? Secrets are revealed. Who is she? I don't know. Where's she hiding from? And the truth will unfold. Let's talk about what you really want to know. Like the layers. Here's what I have to say about that. Of a Chinese box. Nothing. Academy Award winner Jeremy Irons and international sensation Gong Li. In Wayne Wang's Chinese box. Welcome to a special sub-series of the East Green, West Green podcast called Hollywood on Hong Kong. In this short series, we are looking at select Western film portrayals in and about the Fragrant Harbor. Joining me on this journey of cinematic discovery is a podfather of Asian cinema himself, co-founder of the podcast On Fire Network. You know him, you love him, Mr. Kenny B. Know him because he won't go away. <laughs> Someone said to me, like, uh, you've been long-lasting in this game of uh, talking of uh, Hong Kong cinema. The only reason I've been long-lasting is because I don't go away. I just keep on hopping on on Charlie Cho and Ninjas and whatever. But regardless, it's all fun to talk uh, movies with uh, people you admire and like and thank you very much for uh, inviting me onto this series that has been um, new experiences uh, up to this point uh, this uh, movie of, of this episode i've seen once but a long time ago so uh, thanks again and let me throw out a quick 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 um, uh, thanks to you in general for this series P- people have really responded well to it uh, the idea in itself hollywood on hong kong but you also crafted a very very good thread in terms of uh, the themes between the movie the tv series and then this episode's uh, movie. So very well thought out, Paul, and uh, it's been very enjoyable to be part of so far. Well, thank you, and it's been excellent to have you here as the co-host of this series, talking about these with me uh, as I review these, and I get your very unique perspective on them as well. And it uh, makes me feel good if there are listeners out there who enjoy this, and uh, we hope you will enjoy this episode and the episodes to come. If you've not listened before, though, 
sort of the background for this series. Um, the idea was to look at a range of films and break them down into a few subcategories. So here we are in the third episode of the series as a whole, and this is the final episode of sort of the sub-series that I've labeled as Colonial Hong Kong. So we started out looking at sort of the founding of Hong Kong with the movie Taipan, rolled that over into the mini-series last time with Noble House, and which that was kind of the literal heyday of Colonial Hong Kong as a major finance and business center with lots of movers and shakers from all over the globe, you know, settling on and descending into Hong Kong and making that their base of operations. Uh, and now we kind of come to the end of this era with a film that centers itself around the year 1997 and more specifically the return of Hong Kong to China. And this is sort of the setting therein of Wayne Wang's 1998 film, Chinese Box. Um, so you've mentioned that you've seen this before. Are you familiar with um, other works of director Wayne Wang? I am only familiar essentially with three of them, uh, and it's sort of the movies, the, uh, the movie, two movies prior to this one. So essentially I've seen uh, consecutive ones um, because I remember seeing Smoke. The Harvey Cartel and is it William Hurt? Is it? Yeah, not John Hurt, but William Hurt. Regardless, a very warm, uh, nicely told New York set movie. Uh, just enjoyable to see actors act. And uh, I really remember enjoying Smoke. Uh, the sequel was good for some nice improvisational bits. It is rather uh, like a majorly ad-libbed movie. B uh, Blue in the face, if I didn't say the title. Uh, there's like bits where I think Lou Reed is in it. Uh, talk, like, talking some, not nonsense, because I don't know if this is true or not, but he's, he's talking about uh, that the Swedish people, they're very suicidal, man. And it's this sort of, he's talking to someone off camera, not, not even with Harvey Keitel. It's in black and white at that point. And it, it's all, it, it is it is funny. It has good bits, especially the opening bits. So Blue in the Face really feels like a Smoke 1.5. You know what I mean? Like almost uh, bits we couldn't fit into it, but we got enough bits to string together and an ad lib movie, and the people can come and go, and it'll be amusing enough. You know, we we got this sort of wave of smoke uh, because I know it was acclaimed to to help us along. So, uh, but I do remember those. And the Chinese box, I think, came. After them, after them, uh, blue in the face. So, uh, yeah. so essentially, these three movies in a row. And since then, I have not pursued anything else, whether small or big movies, because I think he had some like romantic comedies and such uh, on his resume that took off uh, box office wise. Anyway, how about you? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, so this is, uh, I guess, not the, it was not the first film of his, his I had seen. I remember seeing uh, Chan is Missing, his uh, sort of 1982 film, one that got him quite a bit of acclaim uh, at some point back in the day on VHS. Don't remember a lot about that film, but then I do remember his films uh, Dim Sum, A Little Bit of Heart, which stars the great Victor Wong in it, um, and especially Eat a, Bowl of, Eat a Bowl of Tea, which I think was kind of really the first film of his that I saw where he was really tapping into the Hong Kong actor group a little bit, um, like he does with this film, uh, because in that film uh, you can see uh, Cora Miao, you can see Russell Wong, you can also see a uh, very young Eric Zhang um, in very interesting roles um, and funny roles. It's funny if you've seen that film, what happens to... Uh, 
uh, Eric Zhang at a, at one point. The um, uh, I think is he born in Hong Kong or but mostly um, educated or brought up in America? Do you know yeah, in general my, that? My recollection of his history is that he uh, he grew, was born and grew up in Hong Kong and he came over to the states to do college, mm-hmm. and then at some point his family followed after him. So right. he you know he has a. Um, he has distinct sensibilities with regard to aspects of Hong Kong, and I, I'm sure he, you know, keeps abreast of Hong Kong cinema as well as a filmmaker. Um, and he's kind of worked across the lines between sort of Hong Kong Chineseness, American Chineseness, and then films that are just kind of straight up Hollywood films. And I'm I'm thinking specifically of stuff like Made in Manhattan yeah. um, or Last Holiday. Right. Um, So just sort of straight up commercial films because he's a working director and, you know, he can't always make stuff that is going to represent the Chinese American film community or stuff that's going to, you know, be a bridge between Hong Kong film and and Hollywood film. And so it's a very interesting idea to look at his filmography and how he's kind of balanced these choices out over the years. Um did you see Smoke at any point? I've um, not seen Smoke. I've not seen Blue in the Face. Mm-hmm. Um, primarily, I, I do I've, recommend it because it has. It, now that you talk of it, I didn't really know of his sort of um, how we went back and forth. So, so I didn't know this history. But when you watch Smoke, my memory is that it's pure New York. Yeah. You know, so so it really adds that another notch of versatility. I think it, you 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 sound interested enough in his filmography and his style and what he says and then you bring in smoke which if i remember correctly it's no it, it, it doesn't have like peaks and valleys in terms of tragedy and drama it just i just, just remember it being a very warm film and after having seen harvey Keitel being you know a harder presence and a nasty presence in movies uh, especially in the 90s whether you know bad lieutenant or reservoir dogs it was nice to see uh, him being very apt at uh, being uh, being a warm, uh, warm character, and, and I believe he is the uh, the person who owns the uh, the tobacco shop that people frequent in the movie, and that's sort of the setup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of sort of the general mainstream audience, when they think of Wayne Wang, they probably gravitate to Joy Luck Club simply because uh, that was a bit more of a high profile film based on what was already a high profile novel from Amy Tan, and of course you have a pretty large Asian-American cast, people like Ming-Na Wen, Tamlin Tamita, and others in there. And most recently, I think, um, the last film of his I saw, because I know I know he's had a couple in uh, the past couple of years, but uh, Snowflower and The Secret Fan, um, which in which he goes. And he, you know, uses um, a mix of actresses. So you've got your Korean uh, Jiana Jun, Jun Ji-hun, Mm-hmm. And you've got your mainland China, Li Bingbing. As I was telling Kenneth the other day, uh, there are two Bingbings. There's the Fan Bingbing and the Li Bingbing. Um, the two are not related because they've got different surnames, but I've always been more in the Li Bingbing camp. And I know that there are a lot of people who are more in the Fan Bingbing camp. So it's the War of the Bingbings. And pretty much anything that Li Bingbing is in, I will uh, go out and watch. So uh, I did see that one in the cinema when that was released. And it, it was okay. It was, you know, a, again, interesting story. Um, and a lot of his stories are about not just characters, but about characters across time, characters with histories or roots in different locales, 
and dealing with a lot of those issues kind of in sort of the modern sense. And again, these are the films that I think where he's again dealing with these more global or international connections in some ways. You go to his more commercial stuff, like I said, <laughs> Made in Manhattan or Last Holiday, and that's perfectly fine. It's, you know, if you're looking to sit down and have some good popcorn entertainment, it's very capable. It's it's very credible. Um, yeah, yeah, because it doesn't sound like it was a depressing uh, piece of info to know that the movie you're going to sit down with is directed by Wayne Wang, and it's a quote-unquote a romantic comedy, and it it's, might be generic. It, it doesn't sound like you were depressed afterwards after after having been so infatuated with, with his voice, and now it's gone. Like, uh, <laughs> may, maybe it was nice and relaxing for him to make that, and maybe that translates into nice and relaxing and easily digestible celluloid. Yes, indeed. You know? Indeed. I think it was. It must have been a hit. It sounds like it was in the midst of J Lo craze. Uh, if, yes, if you look it was, at the timeline, I remember. Yeah, and I think that was pre, uh, the pre. What was it? Uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Ben. Was it Benifer that they called it? Or uh, no, not J Lo. Jennifer. Yeah, Benifer J Lo. Yeah. I, I get them confused. <laughs> these these things are confusing for old men like us, Paul. But I do remember it because yeah. the the height of that was during Jersey Girl, and the the, the tabloids were hounding those two during yeah. the making of that movie and yeah. things like that. So it was a, a nasty time too, because tabloids are not nice people. No. In the name of getting pics and stories. So here we are uh, with 1997 film uh, Chinese Box, and the story is thus. It is 1996, and John, a middle-aged British journalist based in Hong Kong, spends his days among the region's elite as they discuss the impending handover of the territory back to China. But news of a terminal medical condition sets him on a path of reflection about the transitive nature of life and place and how this intersects with the people in his own life, including the unavailable Vivian, played by Gong Li, his aloof best friend, Jim, played by Ruben Blades, and a mysterious street girl he encounters named Jean, played by Maggie Cheng. So, yeah, this is a film that uh, when it came out, um, you know, I'm... I was in the in the midst of my love for all things Hong Kong cinema, and I didn't see this in the cinema because it was at the time a Hollywood film, right? And mm. 
it was not, you know, I, I mean, you see Gong Li there and, and it was just not something that I immediately registered as, oh, I must go out and watch this immediately because I was too busy watching, you know, anything I get my hands on with uh, Andy Lau or a Chow Yun-Fat or um, that kind of stuff. You and, elitist. Yes, I was, I was so elitist and I was so, <laughs> so naive and, and incorrectly so because I came away having watched this initially later on, loving it. Um, not that it's a great film, but I was just so amazed at how stupid I was for not <laughs> watching this when it was released because it, it's it's right up my alley in terms of the themes, in terms of the people who are in this, in terms of all of that. And I just kind of was very dismissive of it back in the day because I was just a stupid kid. Um, and, you know, I have no excuse. Uh, so I humbly, humbly apologize to director Wayne Wang, who I know is never going to listen to this podcast, but... Um, you know, for, I my for, speed for not going out and supporting this as a theatrical release because I was too busy uh, fumbling away with the uh, mail order DVDs and stuff. So I, I, I humbly apologize and you can take away my uh, my Asian cinema geek card uh, at any point. You should you so desire. I, um, I think you've made up for it. And if not before, then by doing this show, by producing something uh, and uh, and honoring it, uh, whether you like it fully or or halfway, so yeah, it's so, all good. Um, so when was the first time, because you said you've seen this before, when was your first encounter with uh, this film? I'm guessing 10 years ago or so. It, mm. it was a rental back in the day when uh, you, you still had, uh, or at least I still pursued uh, physical rentals. Uh, you know, when you got uh, free a week, uh, you know, our, uh, our version of uh, the old Netflix model before streaming so i remember i added it on the list probably based on cost because I, at that point if we're talking 10 years ago i was at least familiar with uh, the cost in question you know i knew gong li was in it probably seen a zhang yimo movie or two by that point and so it was more of a random uh, adding uh, addition to my list i watched it and um, then put it aside uh, after i'd seen it so uh, without giving too much away it wasn't like this um, changed my world or anything but there are elements within it that stuck with me curiously enough some elements did not stick with me because as i said privately i had forgotten about a major hong kong actress in the movie that she was even even in it so i was like wait a minute i recognize those eyes oh my god i have forgotten maggie chung was in this movie so i don't know what that says about the movie but um uh anyway that that was the history indeed uh, my lasting memories uh, is uh, michael hoy uh, if I'm being honest. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think with me, it was at the time I was, you know, it was the main two cast members that are featured prominently on the poster. You have Jeremy Irons and you have Gong Li. And I was like, ah, oh, Gong Li, you know, raised the Red Lantern and Jeremy Irons, he's the bad guy in Lion King. So, you know, it was just not something that immediately pulled me out to go see it. But then when I did see it and then you suddenly start to see all these amazing faces from Hong Kong cinema that you know and love. Um, and not just, you know, a Maggie Chung, but you've got uh, Michael Hoy, who it's it's a very different role for him. I mean, it's not that he hasn't done drama before. And there are a couple moments where he starts, he you, you can see him do a little bit of his kind of Mr. Boo creep, right? Where he's he starts to get into the little bit of bubbling, stuttering kind of, dialogue that he does in in some of those roles but just only ever so briefly and for the most part it's pretty much full-on drama 
um, for his it's, role. It's more of a seething thing with M- Michael Hoy's character. It's more of a seething thing yeah. that's going to boil over, and, and I'm sure we'll mention it because it's not a huge spoiler as such. But um, yeah, yeah, not at all. Um, and and so yeah, and you will talk a little bit more about um, some of the deeper layers of cast and cameos um, as as we get through to this. A little bit behind the story, though, um, this isn't really based on anything directly, but um, there are a couple credits that are thrown around. The overall kind of tone of the story, um, and it's kind of referenced as a as, as a source, but again, it's it's very different, is uh, from the Paul Thoreau novel called Kowloon Tong, um, from, uh, from also from, from around this period, so... Um, again, it's a from what I've I've not read that book. That's um, a very different story, though, from what I've researched on. But ve- dealing very similar themes, um, and there are other books of this kind of nature, sort of fictional novels um, dealing with kind of the issues in Hong Kong. This novel, as I understand, was dealing with sort of the impending approach of '97 and expat families and things. And uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing, I can also recommend there's a book, I think, by um, the author's name is uh, Janice Lee, and it's called The Expatriates, which I read um, just over a year ago. And it's kind of the same idea. It's about people who move in very different circles in Hong Kong society. Um, and one of the things this film, I think, does pretty well is it is it shows some of the different layers um, that that exists there, and we'll kind of break that down going forward. Another credit that's given uh, to the story here is uh, a film from an author named um, uh, Ingalls and her short story called The Last Act, The Madhouse, um, which is somewhat given credit to for the character of Jean, uh, her story played by mm. um, Maggie Chung. So again, I haven't read that story. I'm not very familiar with that author as well, but it's kind of a very, you know, he's taking piecemeal elements. And I know that in um, in a couple of his later works, I'm trying to think back to um, his more recent filmography, he's been d- discussed, um, I think, uh, A Thousand Years of Good Prayers and Princess of Nebraska, I think he's on record as saying. Uh, those are both pulled from short stories as well. So this is something that he likes to do on occasion for source material is to adapt or to draw ideas from um, short stories that he likes. And so here, too, you kind of get this combination. And there are lots of different story threads going on. And behind all of these story threads, again, you have the backdrop of the approach of July 1st, 1997, the day of the official handover of Hong Kong. Um, So let me throw it over to you, sir, and uh, let you deliver on some of your thoughts on the film, things that stood out, things you liked, things you didn't? Well, in general, it's a solid film. I I did quite appreciate its uh, its setting and what the sort of impending, you know, the, the ticking clock of the movie is the impending handover, but it's not in an action sense, so obviously. And with Jeremy Irons' character, going through what he does go through because of his diagnosis that that's enjoyable and approachable i think some of that gets drowned out a little bit because wayne wang is uh, bringing his sort of 
blue in the face looseness over to this movie and sometimes that looseness that uh, that, that both translates into a documentary style but almost uh, free-flowing scenes that don't seem structured as such uh, to me that obscured some of the emotional impact that the movie could have had it it does still hit you at points there's some really uh, raw and honest sincere acting here but uh, the, the, it could have um, you know you, you talked of layers here I'm talking of so, some technical layers could have been stripped away and uh, I would have been um, a little bit more involved I think but uh, ultimately there there is a thematic sort of thread that uh, I responded to and uh, and and the setting obviously it doesn't hurt because uh, as this series has shown uh, these productions i mean you probably got some movies in the pipeline for the subsequent sub-series that is just going for the stereotypical cliched hong kong or asia but these selections that you've done for this show they do they do excite as a hong kong cinema fan because it's and primarily it's still it's still location work really and that's never you know old hat or anything uh, i really do like when hollywood puts their eye on this and and Wayne Wang certainly isn't about crafting, you know, sweeping shots. You know, the camera going through the sky, mm. <laughs> not to the streets like this is street level stuff. And uh, you you obviously see that with Jeremy Irons, uh, Jeremy Irons walking uh, his usual path to um, you know wherever where wherever he's going in the beginning and saying hi to people, including uh, a man who uh, flattens uh, uh, cans and presumably is going to get some money for that somewhere. Uh, because he, you know, he's not going to put them in a machine and get like a, a dollar for that. But he's saying hi to people like that. And I, I was going to ask something because I'm an idiot. You, you, if you remember the beginning, uh, you hear on the soundtrack that uh, that pumping noise from that machine that goes chung, yeah, I've and you see it in the in in the movie. But I've heard it in tons of Hong Kong movies because it's part of the soundscape. What is that pump? As a matter of fact, yeah. because I'm dumb like that, I don't know. I couldn't tell you exactly what it's for, but it's it's loud, and I think they use it to sort of break up areas of the street and to help put in holes for cables and wires and sewage right. and, and stuff like that. Um, and and that is a very interesting dynamic because he parallels that with other sounds, like a heartbeat at sometimes, but also he incorporates it into some of the music. Um, it's the musical soundtrack as well and uh, I'll come back to the talking about the soundtrack in just a little bit um, but, but yeah it, it's it's kind of like sort of a you know a, an audio metaphor almost of the idea of you know just the, it just keeps going it just you know it, it's just kind of this thing that's always going forward it's always building it's always monotonous it's loud it's you know it's it's just there in the background and at a certain point, you might tune it out, but then later on, you'll realize it's there again, and it'll start to annoy mm -hmm. you. Yeah, um, I, I remember it out of all movies I've heard it in. I mean, I've heard it probably in dozens, but uh, out of all movies I've also heard it in, it's this uh, small movie that Francis mm, directed uh, called 9413 that, that had that sound. I just remember that because it's always the same... Um, 
sound obviously if they record it live then it's always going to come up like that uh, even if it's a sync sound movie or dubbed movie but um, uh, in in this one because Wayne Wang shot it for a little bit uh, you get to see that pump do yeah. something and uh, yeah and and I assume having spent some years in Hong Kong that that indeed uh, that's been part of the soundscape uh, for better or worse uh, yes yeah. it's it's either that or the continuous drone of uh, jackhammer <laughs> breaking up the screen so <laughs> Um, yeah, it's it's something that you would commonly. I mean, I now that I think about it, I don't know if I saw any of them utilized later on, but definitely when I was first there in the early years, um, they were very very common to encounter. It's an interesting detail that he chooses to focus on, and there are lots. This movie is so much about the details, um, where yes, you have these story streams kind of very full and in your face in the front but once you're kind of beyond that one of the things i like watching this movie and rewatching this movie is picking out the little details and this was a film that for a few years i was showing to um a some of my uh, cinema and culture classes in, to my students in hong kong and it's it's a, it's amazing to get students to watch this film because of the recognition that they have for mm-hmm. people like Gong Li and Maggie Chung and Michael Hoy and, and some of the others will mention. And yet they have no idea that this film exists. It's just a film that's not on their radar at all. Um, and it's a film that is very much relatable to a lot of them because, you know, they grew up and they lived through the handover, although they were probably um, a little bit younger. But it's still something that, you know, some of the issues in, in therein they, they identify with others are sort of outside of their scope, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about mm. that too. Um, I mean, it, it's sort of um, I, I I do commend Wayne Wang for he, he he's not this Hollywood director that's that's just shooting surface level stuff and claiming he made this important movie because he was there. He he seems to sort of clued in and tune and tune to what. Uh, he wants to highlight, uh, regardless if it's uh, you know, details out in the open amongst the aristocrats or whatever, or details in the cramped areas and sort of some sort of the grungy, gritty areas. Uh, so, so it's not this, uh, as I said before, this um, sort of cliched or surface level view of Hong Kong, which is very appreciative. I just felt like the the technical language of capturing it all led to some confusion. And, but, but the core of it all, which is essentially Jeremy Irons' um, story, is, uh, is communicated well enough. And, and when you say there are a lot of story strands and such, and I read that in reviews, that this has six or seven stories going on at once, or four or five, I didn't feel that way because I think he just sort of made us comfortable that way. We didn't think of this as like a magnolia or a shortcut or anything where it's grand like that you know what i mean like it, it felt natural how he just sort of placed strands before us um whether jeremy irons was interacting with all of them or not and i do have to give him props uh, for that because it could have been a stuffed movie man and then you're in uh, you're in deep doo-doo if so yeah I, it's interesting too because i think that the idea of you know the, the different le- levels and layers that we do get not just in terms of the narrative, but also in terms of the actual technical qualities of the film. Um, because you have 
some really gorgeous cinematography at points, although unfortunately it's not up to snuff when it comes to sort of uh, modern releases, and, and we'll talk more about that when we talk about availability. But it, it looks very good for the era. Uh, the cinematography is very good, even though it's shooting Hong Kong in a less glamorous light than we might see in a, in a Hollywood film. And you get also these handheld shots of things. And it's on, you know, a very much a 1997, 1998 kind of uh, small cam tape recorder. At know? least it's and, small, right? And, so he doesn't, yeah. no one needs to carry it on their effing shoulders or anything. But At it's least got, it's small. Yeah, but it's got that, it's definitely got that period of video look to it. And when, yeah, when it's on, sure. when it's, when it's, Put next to cinema film, you know, it's very grainy and it's, it's, it, it just brings, it's not that it's bad. I think that's the effect he was going for. Um, but it just brings a very sort of strong aesthetic sensibility to what he's showing with that footage because it's, it's a mix between that, the cinematic footage and sometimes actual news footage, um, mm -hmm. that's utilized in places. So it's it's a very interesting choice, but I think it can be very jarring for a, a sort of a more mainstream audience who's just looking for a standard, you know, tell me the boy meets girl story and get on with it kind of thing. Yeah, Velou's style, which sometimes just uh, obscured some aspects of the movie for me, especially during the latter parts. Um, and, and I'm talking ever so slightly. I mean, I, I do think it's a good film. Uh, it's not. It's simply not a slam dunk. But uh, his loose style, otherwise, I think, can be very compelling because some conversations feel very, and this is why I connect back to Blue in the Face and Smoke, they feel very... Um, they're, they're structured like we're simply listening in on conversations accidentally. And uh, who knows if uh, if you think of the scene where Jeremy Irons first uh, collapses, who, who knows if all of that dialogue was scripted to the word. But it certainly doesn't come off that way because uh, it's just Wayne Wang sort of as <laughs> almost like an external party goer trying to listen in on the conversations that the big boys are having. And mm. I, I, I kind of dig, dig that stuff. Uh, and he also... Obviously, start to communicate the beats of the movie, being the, um, the you know the terminal disease drama trope. He begins to communicate that, but uh, nothing falls under the banner of tropes uh, when all is said and done. And uh, and and he and, and Jeremy Irons' character, he could have been uh, very unlikable if not handled well either, because he he is he's, he's tired and he's pessimistic to a degree too, and he's tired of if I understood it correctly on reporting or stuff that, uh, as he says, it doesn't last for more than a day. He doesn't feel like he's making an impact as a person who expresses himself. And that's, which, uh, you know, meeting Maggie Chung and they're doing sort of the video project on her is, is that chance, even though the, the terminal disease is looming over him at that point too. And that made him, you know, the switch in, in him from, totally pessimistic to now more emotionally raw but you know realistic maybe hopeful i thought that was um, a compelling part of it all because irons obviously is um is a classic classic and classical actor but um i felt it paul i, I did feel it um, um especially the scenes where he's also longing for gong lee even though he's destructive to a, to a degree but he's raw and uh it that's not um typical melodramatic acting and i thought that stood out 
quite a lot. And that you shouldn't drown in technical trickery. That you should just shoot and let actors react in a raw manner. And um, that was very compelling, I thought, um, in in all honesty. And uh, uh, did you did you have any problem with that in terms of Ions going from this sort of hard edged character to changing throughout the movie was that like a journey that you that you were on board with yeah i think so i think um for me it's it's obviously very reflective of the state of hong kong and the state of kind of british colonial power you know Mm -hmm. as reflected in this one man who and it's not a spoiler here because i mean you're literally like within the first 10-15 minutes of the movie learning that he has this terminal condition and you know he's got some, he's got months, you know, basically mm-hmm. is what the doctor tells him. Um, and he's trying to make sense of all of this. And so it's very interesting that, he, you know, he's got months and at the same time, colonial Hong Kong only has months, right? And so through him, you get this idea of this parallel between, you know, the the, the decline, the death, as it were. of And, um, and yet he's not the pure pessimist he's not uh, he's not filled with fear right. of the change that's coming uh, he i'm n- not saying the student activists and the activism that goes on was wrong or anything or, or that the fear was wrong but he's the counterpoint to a degree that he i, I think he says fairly early in the movie that i don't think that that much is going to change yeah well you know, know he there, says, there's he nothing says, he says hong kong won't die you know it'll change uh but it'll go on right it, it'll be like you know it, it, that's the nature of sort of and and, sort and of maybe things. that's not the wrong argument to bring at at that point uh, but and and maybe that that's the debate that someone who lived through this as a hong kong person versus someone who was perhaps a british citizen before maybe that's a healthy debate to have yeah. that uh, we we genuinely felt fear to the degree that we had to take to the streets. Uh, so, so, so again, I'm not saying that was wrong or anything. And, and Wayne Wang certainly incorporates the student activism, which, which I assume was big at the time. I don't remember the news coverage as such, but uh, it seems like he was. Um, that wasn't st- stage for the movie. The various reports of the student activism and yeah. um, the fear and all of that. Yeah, and then I think too because you do you do get a sense that, like most British citizens, you know. John has an out, right? He can always go back to Britain, but he chooses not to because he's, and and I think he says this in the narrative at one point that, you know, sometimes you just fall in love with a place. And that's definitely a sentiment that for myself, I can personally relate to a lot when it comes to Hong Kong and the understanding that, you know, he doesn't want, things won't be better for him in Britain, regardless of his situation. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, so with his parallel, you also get um, some of the supporting cast parallels as well. Uh, as we mentioned, Michael Hoy is here as uh, as Chang, or I think his English name is also John. And he's the, the very kind of typical business savvy, got to make a buck, got to, you know, get myself out there, be in political circles, you know, making the business deals. Um He's kind of representative of that sort of old business Hong Kong that will continue to go forward. But now instead of making the deals with the Europeans or the British side, it's more focused on making deals with, you know, sort of the the mainland China. You know, he he will survive. He will endure. And that's kind of his his, you know, mini story path there. And then his partner, 
um, not his wife, but his partner, is uh, Gong Li as Vivian. And here, too, interesting choice because she is mainland Chinese as opposed to Hong Kong Chinese, like the Michael Hoy character. And her arc, too, is very reflective of the idea that, you know, she's kind of come from this bad place, but now it's time to reinvent herself and, and start fresh, right? And so, in a sense, she's paralleling, in some ways, the rise of China, uh, you know, uh, as it stands. And so you get kind of these three character identities that are reflective of the three kind of national identities um, in the background as well. And the, the sort of interplay between them. Yeah, there's a there's a love story there, and it's I think it's it's done well, and it, and it's important. But it it um, you know it's just one of the story threads that are running through here. And for some people, that may register a bit more because that's what they're used to seeing in mm -hmm. a Hollywood film. And for other people, I think there's probably more interesting things going on with you know uh, Michael Hoy or um, you know Ruben Blades or. Um, some of the other supporting threads. I think that those uh, those two actors that you just mentioned, obviously Michael Hoy and Ruben Blades. That's uh, I mean, again, I'm 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 pretty damn stupid, so I I maybe I should have registered more, but I felt I I couldn't connect really to Ruben's uh, part of the narrative. There's a scene in the latter stages of the movie where he plays a guitar and sings a particular song. Obviously, I don't know the song, so maybe I therefore I couldn't register what that should have meant for the impact of the movie. But So I'll, I'll reserve judgment on that, I suppose. But in all honesty, Paul, I think Michael Hoy's part felt compromised to a degree. Uh, I, I didn't feel a closure to his part after the pivotal scene, his pivotal dramatic scene. And I don't know why, but it felt like there might have been more before editing did its thing, and uh, and Chang doesn't get reintroduced into the narrative as such. Uh, and, and maybe Wayne Wang felt like I'm done after this outburst. But still, well, there, to me, I had a nagging feeling that we should have had Michael a little bit more to have some some sort of closure. Yeah, there may there may have been more. I mean, the last time we see him, he's actually on a giant. Um, TV screen and he's glad handing with some officials and you see mm. kind of Gong Li looking up at that and, and then you know kind of just taking off and I think I think maybe he just felt that after the outburst you know things aren't things weren't things weren't going to change he wasn't going to change who he was he was always going to be uh, feel that uh, Gong Li and the rumors in the past for the Vivian character um were going to be a noose around his neck, right? If he if he ever went further uh, with that mm. relationship, so right. she realized that, and he knew that, and and you know, thus that's where they kind of left that off. Um, Maybe it has to do with the fact that I wanted to see Michael more because I think he uh, he is in, well. One is impeccable. He's impeccable as a comedic performer. His English is impeccable as well. Uh, I've seen him in interviews prior to seeing this movie. So I knew that he would have no problem delivering dialogue with nuance and um, and uh, infliction and what have you. But uh, I, he, he's he's never you know he never looks like a clown. Obviously he he can and therefore he can transfer himself into drama. And I'm not sure I've seen I'd I probably saw always on my mind after this movie but certainly that's a confirmation that he can do drama and i i think it's quite a pure joy and the most natural thing in the world to see michael 
in this role. Uh, there's a comfort there, and whatever accent is there doesn't matter because he's a Hong Kong person anyway. And uh, that um, is uh, one of the reasons, probably like the imagery of the movie and the sort of sounds of the movie that stayed with me was probably Michael Hoy uh, because um, I found it delightful that uh, Wayne Wang cast him and there was no worry in the world that Mr. Boo would go these routes um, uh, that that would be like a tough sell or anything but uh, no, he, he kind of goes in the opposite direction he puts the smack down on so yeah it's it's uh, it, it's a great role for him and I think he's very magnetic and he's one of the reasons that I like going back uh, to to watch this and I would have loved for him to definitely have uh, a more expansive part to be sure. With regards to Ruben Blades, um, you know, that, that song in question, I had never heard that song before I watched this movie. Um, again, it's part of the soundtrack, so it's an actual song that he recorded and they <laughs> included on the soundtrack, which is interesting. And, you know, his his role too, I mean, as this kind of photographer looking for a story, but he kind of bounces between Macau and and Hong Kong and his girlfriend's place, and, you know, he's kind of like this drifter. Um, I think he puts another kind of aspective spin on what is the nature of a Hong Kong identity and and a Hong Konger versus a person who stays in Hong Kong and, and space and place and, and these kinds mm-hmm. of things uh, as he continuously comes back to crash with his friend John because he doesn't have his his own place. But that particular scene where he sings that song, Part of me wonders if that was more of a, like like you mentioned some of the moments for Blue in the Face, which were basically just improv takes that didn't get put into the first film. Part of me wonders if some of that was done here, where he just said, "Hey, you know, Ruben, can you play a song?" And he just played a song. Um, mm-hmm. I liked um, some of that, and then at a certain point, he's taking um, he's taking Jim, the Ruben Blades character, through places in Hong Kong because first he takes them up to, to the peak and, and you see the sort of very typical Harbor View and he says, beautiful, great light, but boring. You know, he says, this mm. is, this is what everybody shoots. It's not what I want to shoot. I want to see the, you know, I, I need to see the chaos. I need to see the calamity. I need to see social issues that are going on in the build up to the handover. And so he ends up taking him to what is very likely Mong Kok or Kowloon or, um, you know, what we, would sometimes refer to as the dark side um, in in some blog circles of Hong Kong. And these are the sites that the places where foreigners typically don't go, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, the back alleys where kids are working, where things are being made. Not that it's dangerous, you know, it just it's just that these small alleys are dark and uninviting and normally your sensibility would be not to walk down that alley, you know. Um, and, and mahjong parlors and things yeah. like that where where, yeah. where where middle-aged ladies are having their weekly or daily mahjong session yeah. so and they're waiting for their next client to show up or, or whatever and yeah. you know they're making armani suits and, and these kinds of things and um and so that here he starts to you know do photography and, and we get him shooting videos but we also get some of the handheld stuff here too later um, that uh, John starts to reflect on. And some of this stuff, you know, some of the handheld video stuff too, obviously some of it's staged, especially when that's videos being focused around the Maggie Chung character, but some of it, like there's this running dog 
Um, there's a, f um, you know, a wet market street or street market where they're, you know, uh, flaying open fish and they're using this very specific technique where the fish is basically still alive while it's filleted. Um, yeah. And that's supposed to represent freshness so that when you, you know you're buying a fresh fish because the heart is kind of still beating and pumping there. Um, and so some of the video that's being shot, it's it's questionable whether, you know, Wayne just got, a, whether he himself did it or he got somebody to do it, the cameraman or the cinematographer, to go to these places and just start filming people actually doing this or whether these were, you know, setups, you know, was the, the running dog, you know, training to fight in, in pit fights. Was, was that a setup or was that just, you know, I know this guy who does this, you want to go film it kind of a yeah. thing. Um, and, and for me, that's, that's a very interesting kind of thing, you know, questioning, is this really real or is this, you know, did they just get some extras to kind of slap mm -hmm. this together? It, it, it certainly still is compelling to get these images, whether shot on film or shot via the video camera, it, because it, it is uh, the, it's it's more genuine and sincere rather than um, you know again as I've said before, shoot stuff that people associate with Hong Kong so the mass audience can recognize it. Yo, you know he he doesn't go for that Wayne Wang. He, he goes for you know the street level slash if you want to call it ugly and it, it's still a compelling thing although if, if you're a sensitive viewer and i don't blame you uh, those scenes where fish are being cut up uh, you also see a, a chicken being beheaded at that point so you know if you want to turn away at any point then uh, if you need to turn away at any point i, I guess it's that point so yeah. uh, but uh, you and i have seen our share of Hong Kong movie, so unfortunately we're kind of used to, the, to these sites. You know, Lam Ching Ying has done it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> two chickens are crap in movies. So, uh, and, you know, and for it, it is for, for a good cause, right? You got to stop those those uh, hopping vampires. Exactly. <laughs> I want to ask you. Um, I guess I think we talked about Gong Li uh, every now and again um, as an actress, and um, uh, so for me, sometimes it's I, I like her. And even in somewhat recent movies, she's really good. Um, sometimes it's hard to detach from the fact that you're watching Gong Li. Mm -hmm. Because she, she's such a, you know, a mainstay of mainland cinema, obviously. And sometimes she's in lavish dramas and, uh, you know, costume to hell and back. And she's impactful in that regard. She's like a strong visual image. But so... It is sometimes hard to, to detach from the fact that she's going Lee, but she comes through every now and again with some wonderfully like natural performances. And there, there are some good beats here. She's a good reactor to the chaos around her and uh, her predicament of, uh, you know, being looked down upon as, as a mainland Chinese woman. And, uh, she she has to absorb that in certain scenes. You you mentioned you mentioned uh, Lise UK who just keeps berating her at that bar and without any filter whatsoever. It's uh, you know <laughs> some horrible stuff is coming out of his mouth, and she, she's good at reacting to that. And I I felt like the more the movie ran, the more I uh, stopped seeing Gong Li and more of the character. Mm. Uh, but but I wanted to m mention two examples where the sort of polar opposites of Gong Li in movies, it it doesn't need to be just natural. It can be big too. I mean, one of my favorite movies from her. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a mainland China drama called Breaking the Silence, where she plays this uh, 
working class mother with a deaf son, right? And uh, her struggles of uh, getting him into school and all of that. And she's very good. Uh, you so you you don't see the glamorous Gong Li there. But then again, when you watch entertaining movies like Curse of the Golden Flower and Monkey King Two, that's all good fun. Like she she can do the spectrum, but so some sometimes it can be a hard sell to. So just keep watching the movie and eventually you'll forget it's Gong Li because yeah. she's so iconic. It, you know does, what I mean? it, does, it does take a while. I do agree with that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, especially in more high profile films as her career continues. Um, so I'm thinking of, uh, you know, like watching her opposite Andy Lau and what women want. Um, it took a while to kind of detach her from, you know, Gong Li um, and I'm also thinking of her pairing with uh, Stephen Chow, of course, and Flirtong Scholar, um, where there too, I think, you know, initially when she shows up, it's like, hey, Gong Li, and then it takes, okay, and she, finally you kind of leave that persona behind. And I guess that's the price many actresses like, you know, the Fan Bingbings and the Li Bingbings and the Zhang Ziyi's end up having to deal with when their brand identity gets so big. Mm-hmm. That you kind of see the brand first, and then if they're really good, which most of them are in the role, that brand can start to melt away, but it may take some yeah. time. Yeah, for sure. Because even in Monkey King too, I'm sure you registered that, oh yeah, I know she's in the movie, and there she is. But she is doing bad guy or villain acting to, uh, you know, she's bringing it, uh, she's uh, bringing it to 11. And th- that was fun for me because uh, she, en- she looked like she enjoyed that amidst the 3D and the CG um, fakery and all of that. So it can work, uh, you know, natural, big, but sometimes uh, you have to be patient with her. And speaking of big bad guy villainery, uh, at the time we're recording this, she has just apparently been cast in the Disney live action remake of Mulan as the yeah. villain. Alongside they keep piling with, uh, on. Uh, they keep piling with, uh, on the uh, Asian cost. Yeah, Don, Donnie Yen is apparently assigned now, and so is Jet Li, if uh, rumors hold true. So, yeah. um, you know, it could, should should be big and interesting, and uh, we'll see we'll see what happens with that. Uh, the um, yeah, it's it, the, there's one scene in particular where I think it's really interesting to watch her work. It's when she's in the bar, she's watching a television. Uh, with an old movie on it, and I believe it's Marlena Dietrich. I don't recognize the film, and she's basically just kind of, bare, you know, not not seriously, but kind of imitating the scene uh, in her own way. And it's mm-hmm. it's it's really interesting to see that because you kind of get the sense that uh, you know this is an actress who probably has done this before. You know, with with it's almost what you expect. You know, to yeah. see Gong Li to stand there smoking a cigarette and being glamorous, and here she's mimicking that, yeah. miming. Um, so interesting stuff. Uh, as we mentioned, quite a few other big name uh, actors and actresses that pop up from time to time, but we should spend some time to, of course, talk about the one that Kenneth forgot, uh, Miss Maggie. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> At least I recognize the eyes immediately. Yeah. Yeah, it's Tote Maggie Chung who looks, uh, she has a what, you know, she, she's very good in a movie, but uh, uh, an immature part of me thought, like, she looks like a drifter that might not shower every day, but she has an impeccable haircut. Despite, yeah, it's kind of going know. for the, somehow reminds me of Fei Wong for some reason. Um, uh-huh. Kind of going for that short, kind of pixie cut, bob, bobbed out kind of thing. Right. Um, 
that you know looks it, it looks like it's been done but also it still could fit with the street kind of character she's playing yeah yeah but she's never tough to she, she's never tough selling movies as such for me though, because uh, she's always been likable and i've always enjoyed her transition from uh, you know, supporting uh, action actress, you know, comedian to full-on glamorous movie star like she was meant to be, you know, and and that took place through like a fishy story and center stage, and she was off and running after that point. But uh, it, it's also fun that even after such movies, she has fun easily digestible box office friendly stuff on her resume too because she did center stage and the year after we got heroic trio so she was never above that which is uh, nice to see and um she's uh, it, it's a, tri- a tricky little story here which i won't spoil but because uh, it it um the issue of whether her story is real or firmly plays out in her mind is uh, i guess Either, either it is answered or Wayne Wang leaves it up in the air but uh, it was still interesting enough I think uh, the way it ultimately ended if, if you will uh, did you feel that way that uh, that was her, her story the very, very harsh story that was full on true for what she uh, piling on a little bit yeah I think that's the that's the thing that the director consciously chooses to leave a little bit enigmatic um, I think that a lot of people will come away thinking that there's not a lot of truth behind it, but if you understand the way that uh, certain people at higher levels of the society operate and the, the kind of facade that's created, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that she was telling mm-hmm. the truth. Um, but, you know, then again, it's you are left to make that decision kind of on your own. Um, which is an which I think is a good choice um, for the overall arc of the character. Yeah, it's she, she's scored in many ways. Obviously, that distinct um, external uh, makeup on her, and uh, so, so I was interested um, all all up till her final moments in the film. And her and Irons uh, have a nice uh, back and forth. Obviously, again, Maggie. I think she was educated or lived quite a distinct uh, amount of years in in england so her english is uh, obviously not an issue for these movies and therefore to have these this natural back and forth between um, between actors obviously shot with live sound is um, quite enjoyable and um, unbelievable uh, because uh, she she's up to that task and has been in a couple of movies um, in terms of uh, acting in english and what have you so uh, no complaints there and i promise maggie I will remember you. I will remember you. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's definitely interesting in terms of the kind of work she was known for up to this point. Um, you know, kind of throwing off that Wong Jing girl next door image that she had early on and even pushing aside a little bit of the Jackie Chan police story image um, to do this in a sort of very different kind of a character for her, um, but one I think she handles very, very well. Um some other people that show up of note, I won't list all of them, but of course, uh, good, great cameos by people like Maria Cordero. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some people will recognize Emotion Chung, uh, Chung Gan Cheng, uh, as a student who does something very terrible early on. Uh, Lee Su Kei, who we mentioned, uh, Alex Ng is here as well. And uh, of course, did you spot uh, Miss Ho? 
Yeah, did. Yep. Uh, Josie Ho who, credited who, with a different uh, English name. I mean, if you watch the scene, she doesn't really get any dialogue at all, um, which, is, which is which is terrible when you you know if you know Josie and the stuff that she's done. But it's still it's one of those things that I had forgotten, you know, and and I it's I'm sure I'll forget it again between now and the next time. I watched this movie that she's in this movie in a, in a very small scene. That's like, oh, there's all yeah, she's also here. Um, so yeah, what was her is, English name in the credits? Like Josephine was, uh, or Jacqueline? Or no, something? it was Lily. Lily. She was Jenny. No, no, no. But I mean, her uh, name. Uh, her, her, her. She wasn't Josie yeah, no, in the credits. It was Josephine. Yeah, Josephine, right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's uh, you know, there's lots to look for in terms of. Uh, cameos by people you will recognize so if you are a hong kong cinema fan and uh like me this was one that you put off for a while just thinking yeah gong lee and jeremy irons not really my cup of tea don't think they have a lot of chemistry together um don't do that don't think that because uh this is a film that i think you will definitely glean a lot out of just just in 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 the fact of how it shoots the city um, even if you're not that invested in the main character storyline, there's a lot of details um, to look for. And, and the attention to detail is what I love about this film. Like I said, they, um, you know, while they were shooting this, one of the big news events was that uh, Deng Xiaoping had died. And, uh, you know, early on, right when you see kind of John's desk where he writes his news stories at. He's got all these little trinkets and there's like a Deng Xiaoping little figure sitting on a sofa with a cat, you know, on his uh, lap, you know, because he's got that famous, doesn't matter whether the cat is black or white quote. Um, and it's these little, these little touches, which really kind of symbolize, you know, yes, of course, if you're a journalist working in Hong Kong, you've likely been to one of the, central markets where they sell these little doodads and things and you probably picked up little knickknacks like that and keep it on your desk it's it's got this eye for detail that i think a regular hollywood director brought in from the outside who really had no sense of hong kong would have completely overlooked um and uh i think that's great his 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 loft i guess it's a loft it's like up this large flight of stairs that he actually lives on, you can kind of figure out where it is roughly because at one point later in the film, you can see out one of the windows the escalator, the long escalator that winds up through uh, Central and Soho. Um, so you know roughly approximately where his apartment is. And you kind of know he's got some decent money if he's living in that area, even in the I was about to ask, uh, does that make sense <laughs> versus uh, occupation? But yeah. Yeah, and, and and again, the idea that he's bouncing between these different groups, you know, he mixes with the high-level expats, um, he mixes with uh, Chinese business people, and he's also interested in trying to get a view of the street. Um, does make sense for, their, you know, a, a journalist kind of character in that position. It does, too, in some ways, though, beg the question of sort of the foreign gaze, the intrusive gaze of the Western gaze on, you know, Hong Kong as the exotic, you know, again, when they go into these back alleys and things there, you can kind of get that sense that, you know, he's the outsider kind of marginalizing the culture as, you know, exotic or quote unquote, non-boring, uh, as it were. 
by by going in that direction. And but that's <clears throat> something that many Western artists and journalists and people who've gone to Hong Kong to look for stories and and inspiration are equally uh, guilty of. So he's somebody who moves in these various circles, and uh, you know there are certainly many Hong Kongers um, who you know, or expats who live in Hong Kong or Hong Kong residents who are expats who would probably live in the same area. But there are many more now who choose to, because of cost, live further afield um, in the new territories and, and elsewhere. I wanted to mention, by the way, uh, uh, about the end, but I won't spoil it, uh, that that was the tricky, conceptually, Wayne Wang went into some very tricky, treacherous territories because um if I say to you, you, you will understand it, but it might sound vague for a non-watcher. But the uh, scene at the harbor in the morning with uh, Jeremy Irons um, and its meaning and how Wayne Wang handle, handles that. Dangerously close to being just almost too sappy and mm-hmm. almost, uh, you know, uh, it involves the video camera too. But I, I don't know. He Maybe it's the themes and the messages is built up throughout the movie especially having to do with jeremy irons dialogue as we referenced that he 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 he's he doesn't think hong kong is hopeless or anything and i guess that played into the moment to enough to enough degree especially since it's silent also i don't think the voiceover was on this um scene makes that final image um quite real and poignant and Jeremy has been on board with the character throughout the movie, been engaged and in a raw fashion as I said so this all plays into it but it's it's dangerously close dangerously close to being heavy handed and um, uh, but he, he manages to avoid uh, avoid that and, and all of that so um, uh, could, could have been too self-important if that depth had not been conveyed well enough, but Wayne Wayne never really approaches the area of, uh, you know, abstract art house director who, oh, and I'm the only one who knows what it means. That kind of director, no. Yeah, so, um, you know, if if you want to share your thoughts, uh, sure. In terms of that final scene, but uh, um, challenge yourself as a director, I guess, is the is the lesson to learn. To go into areas that have been done tons of times before in various ways and see what your take is on on a sort of a closing scene like that. But uh, I think it did it. Yeah, I do think it works in term, terms of Jeremy Irons' character's arc um, and, again, sort of the reflective theme of the whole thing of the handover. And we do get, uh, at the end, a lot of footage from the handover, the lowering of the flag, you see Prince Charles, Chris Patton in, in the scene. And I can remember watching that stuff on TV when, when it happened. Uh, it was, you mm-hmm. know, a rainy mess and uh, sort of uh, the, the, the changing over. And then we get a few shots of the PLA and the the China National Anthem as they are kind of being brought into Hong Kong. But Hong Kong, you know, uh, continues on even after the July 1st date. And the interesting thing, too, I think, in the both the final shot that you mentioned but also in a scene, a few scenes earlier, are is you know again some of the notions of change because there's a scene where he goes into one of the very it's it's pretty much the most famous on par there there were two big rivals and it was one of them uh, the most famous nightclubs or hostess clubs 
Um, and this one is called uh, Be Boss, and he goes there, and um, this is where he uh, meets up with a girl called Jenny, and I won't say more about that. Um, but uh, that's the real place was a real club and famous for you know having golf carts being driven inside and this kind of stuff, and you get to see a lot of that. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah, really? you, you see that you see that in in a scene where the, the guy's riding a golf cart to one of the rooms and kind of beeps and makes him get out of the way. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that, clo- that closed down in 2012. It was like the end of an era. Um, there was, there were a couple articles about it. Uh, it was called Club Volvo, um, early on. So if you watch some older Hong Kong films, you may see Club Volvo, um, in, in some of them. I can't think of any that come to mind, but later it was renamed as B-Boss and uh, no longer there. Again, uh, kind of the idea that it was... Prominent even in uh, 97, but not prominent uh, anymore. And also in that final scene that um, Kevin Ken was talking about, this final sort of video shot, you can see IFC-1 uh, over on Hong Kong Island being built sort of in the midway phase of construction. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, again, just indicative, I think, of how quickly this place changes, um, both in terms of a cultural sense, but also in terms of a physical and spatial sense. And by the way, I, uh, I, I sent this to you, but uh, I asked a friend of, uh, well, he's a friend of all of us because he's a, he, he, he likes to share and he's included into the Hong Kong cinema community because he makes these movies. I asked uh, uh, Mike Leader if he was involved in any way or knew of any sort of uh, making off tidbits about the Chinese box and apparently you can spot the likes of Mike Leader and friends in uh, a party scene probably the one with emotion Chung because he mentioned it was the New Year's party scene and uh, the only reason he was in town and some of his friends was in town because a movie completely of a completely different nature a movie, I, a movie I like was shooting at the same time and that was knockoff <laughs> the crew, the casting crew of knockoff was doing uh, that movie in Hong Kong at the time so um so yeah, you can see Mike Leader apparently and some of his uh, some of his friends uh, as uh, extras and uh, they needed Western party goers. So that's um, that's what Mike was tasked to uh, do on one of his days off uh, before he went back to uh, shooting shooting with JCVD Choi Hak and uh, and uh, Rob Schneider and crew. So good times, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, as he, uh, well, one, I'm a, I'm a fan of that movie, but I, as he said. They, they paid a lot of money for us to show up as extras and, and party, to drink and to yeah. drink actual alcohol for the scene. So, what a tough gig on your day off, I guess. Yes. Uh, what a tough day off those guys had. So, and then showed up to continue to make uh, the fun experience for me anyway. That knockoff uh, is uh, by by Choi Hak. Yes, um, and I think he, I think he also mentioned in that in his response to you that um, one of his friends was also in. There's a minibus scene where I think it's the minibus scene. There are a couple of minibus scenes, but one with Jeremy Irons and Ruben Blades, and I think you said uh, his friend is uh, prominent in that scene as well. Um, yeah, uh, someone who went has gone on to produce more distinctly and become a profile as a producer and things like that. So uh, people who have continued to uh, hone and shape themselves so professionally as behind-the-scenes persons uh, in Hong Kong and probably mainland Chinese cinema to a degree, I'm sure, too. Yeah. And to Ken's point, as he talked about, you know, how uh, sort of a director who knows what they're doing 
here knows how to shoot uh, the not not just the story but knows how to shoot the details here uh, you can compare that with a recent film uh, the Laura Croft Tomb Raider reboot which was mm-hmm. done which has a scene in Hong Kong which is obviously you know again going back to that very much oh this is a Hollywood view of what Hong Kong is like it's people living on boats and a chase scene ding, across ding, 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 boats ding, yeah I that mean kind of thing. that kind of thing with the music just left off but everything else right, pretty much right. um, which, which is a shame um, but yeah, it's it's you know I think it's very well handled here. And again, if you're a fan of Hong Kong cinema, um, there's lots here to like and love, even if you're not a fan of the leads themselves. So the last point I want to make, and then I'll throw it back over to Ken, is the score. Um, this has for me what has always been an amazing score, a mix of very kind of different music all throughout, but music that is still somehow reflective of Hong Kong be it the um, borderline song that's uh, sung by Ruben Blades or the main theme score, which is um, scored by, I, if I'm going to say his name correctly and correct me if you know better, Ken, uh, Graham Ravel. Yep, and um, he worked with a Chinese artist, Dadawa, who some people, if you follow Chinese music at all, she has she's kind of like a Chinese Enya. If that's a fair comparison, uh, for you know, I I I hope no that makes nobody angry. But uh, the kind of music she does is kind of this ethereal singing, and so she adds her voice power to the theme, and it's a very haunting kind of theme that I've always liked. And just that alone prompted me to go out and buy the soundtrack. And there are um, numerous other songs that are listed on the soundtrack um, as well that are you know just make for some good listening to not just, you know, theme music, but actual uh, lyrical music. And I was, as I was looking through the credits too, um, they do list a song from the group Celestial, which is a Hong Kong-based sort of uh, techno music kind of group uh, that I love. I've collected almost all of their albums over the years, and you can find their music. I think they're still listed under um, hongkongdubstation.com. But their early titles were released under the label Celestial, and um, I I can I don't remember actually hearing that song in the film, but it's listed there in the credits. It's not on the soundtrack, but it's um, from one of their early albums, and I've always loved their music. Their music's always kind of been Hong Kong for me. Whenever I'm walking around the streets in Hong Kong, or riding the bus, or flying there, um, I usually have a playlist of all their stuff um, just going on in the background. Um, that's they're kind of like my soundtrack to Hong Kong. So you can check them out if you're so musically inclined. Uh, final thoughts, sir? I don't think I have anything else to add other than like, like largely it's uh, it, it plays out quite quite okay and solid and is affecting. And there, there's only some uh, some bursts here and there that flew over my head a little bit, and that's not making a judgment on the fact that what Wayne Wang did was wrong and unacceptable as, as filmmaking. Uh, but but largely it doesn't drown itself into, you know, in self-importance or anything. He's still a narrative director at heart and not just, uh, and, and not someone who wants to craft uh, symbolism as narrative. And uh, and granted, I don't know what uh, what the prior films and the subsequent films hold in terms of experimentation, if he keeps it narrative-based and uh, storytelling-based, but uh, 
uh, it's simply not uh, a choice normally that I'm quite fond of. So I'm glad he keeps it uh, quite straight. And my final note to you, sir, go seek out smoke. Because I think you're going to have a good time watching actors act. And not show off the acting. Just a, uh, It's a warm film and an enjoyable film to watch these two heavyweights, uh, Harvey and, uh, and Hurt, um, act. So And uh, sit down in a quiet room for the final scene where Harvey Keitel tells, uh, tells a particular story. Uh, it's a, for the final scene is the highlight of Smoke mm. for me. And uh, so thoroughly recommend that if, uh, since you haven't pursued that, but other movies from Wayne's uh, filmography. And uh, uh, Blue in the Face as a double feature? or I, I, I suppose. So just expect a little bit less because it's not, uh, if anything, that isn't as driven narrative-wise. Because I, the wiki page said something that it, it even consisted of footage that they shot during smoke anyway and uh, but but to complete blue in the face they spent like 10 days doing some stuff and then compile it and it feels like a compilation of uh, of albeit fun ad-libbed stuff in and around that um, that tobacco store mm. but it, it's it's different in concept but not self-important as such uh, especially the first scene that um, Mira Sovino's character gets uh, mugged and they bring the kid back and they have a dialogue about uh, what to do with him if they're going to do something with the thief or not and uh, and that that's probably the best scene along with Lou Reed talking some strange stuff about the suicide rate in Sweden mm, indeed. <laughs> and, oh. and, and, and Lou's dry delivery really works for that scene because if, you, if you've seen Lou talk at all uh, you know it's uh, he's not uh, you know Mr. Hey 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 I'm here <laughs> All right. Well, if I had to give a uh, follow-up recommendation for you, I would say probably try to get a hold of Eat a Bowl of Tea if you haven't seen it. Um, just, again, because it's got the very great Russell Wong uh, being the romantic leading man, and you've got uh, Eric Zhang being a Eric... Not not typical Eric Zhang. He's being kind of Romeo Lothario Eric Zhang, which is a, right a, 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 an interesting kind of Eric Zhang. For the, he for the must period. have loved that after being the butt of jokes in the 80s. <laughs> right. right. Finally. Um, so, yeah. So, check that out and uh, that will be good stuff. And if you've seen Chinese Box or you have thoughts on Chinese Box, uh, please do drop us a line here and let us know what you thought as well. Uh, availability. So, this is still pretty widely available. There are are DVD versions out there that you can probably buy. I'm not sure if they're, I don't think they're still newly in print, but you can certainly find them secondhand very easy. Um, there's a Hong Kong version of this as well that's still pretty easily available if you're looking for that. Um, but most of you will probably be more in tune with uh, the digital versions on both uh, Amazon and iTunes, which are very affordable. I think the rental is listed at $4.99 and the purchase is at $5.99. So, um, you know, it's, you're not going to be paying a lot more if you want to buy the digital version of this. Now, the problem is, is that while they're in HD, um, they look like they've been basically upscaled. They are not remastered in any way, shape, or form. So they're still, especially in the beginning, I noticed quite a few artifacts um, throughout the print. So uh, it's unfortunate that this hasn't gotten... Uh, a better treatment in terms of that. And maybe someday it will. Uh, now I want to throw over to Mr. Broerson because do you know, does this have an LD version by any chance? Or I looked, I could not find anything. 
I did not check, but if you permit me to do so, I might as well. Because, uh, you know, being a U.S. title, it always had a U.S. distribution. So it's not like this was uh, confined to Asia only. Um, uh, I'm sure it did um, uh, only in Japan, apparently. Mm. So there you go. And therefore, that will be half problematic because um, the movie is a uh, mixed language uh, movie, English and Cantonese. Obviously, English being the majority of it. But uh, you would not be able if you are in need of subtitles you would not be able to understand least uk being very nasty to gong lee in that uh, in that bar bar scene uh but uh, but yeah it, it's a shame because so, sometimes itunes it is nice to have because you know some movies are not going to have this upgrade to hd on disc they just seem forgotten to time they're part of a large catalog but it's a shame that itunes doesn't offer up sometimes as we talked about the actual at least a digital HD version, which will be an upgrade from an old SD DVD, of course. And it's a shame that they um, they go over laser route because sometimes I do find movies on iTunes that are all listed as SD, you know, transparency. Mm. And it's a shame when they um, try to uh, pull a fast one on you that way. Granted, four ninety nine is not the worst price in the world, but uh, you still expect uh, what's on the box, so to say, to match what's what you're gonna watch eventually uh, so that, that's a shame that they're, they're doing that but at least it's available you're listening to the east screen west screen podcast visit kongcast.com for more You have been listening to Hollywood on Hong Kong, a sub-series of the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us at our website at concast.com or on Twitter at concast, email at eastscreen at gmail.com, and follow us on Facebook at East S West S. As always, I would urge you to follow along with everything that my wonderful co-host does, Mr. Kenny B. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Well, the podcast on Fire Network, uh, that's the plug I'm going to... Uh, only plug I'm going to do at podcastonfire.com among other things we do a show on Hong Kong cinema new and old and mostly at one point we only did uh, vintage cinema but uh, uh, inspiration has uh, been uh, growing especially talking to you and listening to you sh- your show in terms of uh, exploring a little bit of the newer output and uh, exploring it in a way where I come off as knowing what I'm talking about because uh, I-, I need to riff, uh, like re-familiarize myself with uh, what the dynamic is between Hong Kong and mainland cinema and what, it, what it's all like. It's not just watching movies and pulling facts from my head. So I, I attribute my reason for going into new movies to uh, to the work that you do along with Kevin. So I'm very appreciative of that. So, uh, But we have other shows at any rate on podcastonfire.com as well, covering Japanese cinema, Korean cinema and so forth, and even adult cinema, because that's what I do, damn it. So uh, yeah, yeah, that's me plugged out. Excellent. So yes, please do check out our friends over at the Podcast on Fire Network and all the wonderful stuff that they do. Our next show will be on a little bit of a divergence from Hollywood itself, but still kind of the West looking at Hong Kong with the 1965 French comedy Up to His Ears. 
which is also known as Chinese Adventures in China. So we'll be talking about that uh, some point in the future. I'm not sure exactly when we'll be getting together to record that, but that will be slated for the next show as we end up with this sub-series on uh, Colonial Hong Kong and move into our second sub-series on Hong Kong hijinks, uh, as it were. And uh, if that sounds like it's up your alley, we hope you'll join us for that. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Green, West Green podcast saying, uh, you know, uh, if you've not seen Chinese Box, please go out and watch it because I didn't and I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll see you next time. Thank you, everybody, for the support of this sub-series. Go and send plenty of emails to Paul right now about how much you love it. Good, good. Yep, that was enjoyable. Sorry about the end there. My, I forgot to charge my iPad and it just got down to. It gave me the ten percent warning, uh, like um, five minutes ago, and then suddenly it just said, "That's it, I'm done." Yeah, you 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 should know better that that warning means run for the cord <laughs> now. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Treat it as a Mission Impossible bit. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs>